You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. We're going to talk about that topic that no one wants to think about, much less wants to actually talk about. We're going to talk about the D word, death. You may be saying, Keith, we've been talking a lot about death lately. I agree. But why does my wife have to tell me four or five times the same thing? Because I have a thick head, sometimes a hard heart, and I don't listen like perhaps I should. And so Solomon knows the one topic that we don't want to think about and we don't want to talk about has to be talked about because there's a God-shaped vacuum within every human being that understands that this life is not all there is. I can demonstrate that by a relatively recent phenomenon, something called death cafes. Now, you're probably saying, well, what is a death cafe? Is that a place where real bad coffee is served? No, it's actually not. It's a place where tea is served and cake, of all things, is served, and groups of people get together to talk about death. Talk about a bizarre happy hour. I mean, seriously, tea, cake, and death. What is a death cafe? A Swiss sociologist came up with the idea, and then a British businessman began to ensure that the model caught, and for the last 20-some years, Death cafes have been hosted in 80-plus countries of the world. And there's one that's available to you, if you would like, in Southern Oregon. My wife is actually from Southern Oregon, and you can see this bizarre picture. It's a school with a butterfly in the backdrop. We even had a death cafe in the Seattle area two months before the pandemic. But of course, the pandemic literally killed death cafes. No one wanted to talk about death any longer. But in case you're interested, I'm sure they will return. But here's what's so tragic. Outside of the tea and the cake and talking about death, there's no agenda. There's no purpose. There are no ultimate answers. They have no theme for any of it. They just want people to be able to come together and talk about death because they know it's a need that we all have. The world may be doing an even better job than the Church of Jesus Christ because we want to shy away from that topic, and yet the world is beginning to enter into it. At Crossroads Bible Church, we believe that the D word should be discussed. And we believe that the Bible holds answers not just to death, but to life. And what we've learned to love about the book of Ecclesiastes in our series is this. Solomon pulls no punches. He is no nonsense. Now, that may leave some of us feeling heavy-hearted, like we've almost been just obliterated in church. But we've said we don't need the Christian veneer. We don't need the plastic face 
What we need is to be able to come to grips with life after death and what death holds for anyone and everyone who's made in the image of God and has value, dignity, and worth, both for the pre-Christian and for the follower of Christ. And Solomon is going to talk about death today, but he's going to give us direction on how we should deal with the inevitable process of death. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, has a structure that may be familiar to you. It's called a chiasm, or some will call it a chiasm. I call it a chiasm, but chiasm works because the middle of this structure is the key. And it's really a literary sandwich where you have two outside, if you will, pieces of bread, and then you've got the PB&J or the ham and cheese in the middle, and it's the guts, if you will. It's those ingredients in the middle of the sandwich that's the key to the chiasm. So you'll see our structure today. The first six verses will simply say, death is certain. We'll move from verses 1 through 6 to the conclusion of this section, verses 11 and 12, and we'll find that life is uncertain. Life is unpredictable. Then we will back up to verses 7 through 10 that will say, in spite of the fact that death is certain and life is uncertain, enjoy your life. And that's where we will conclude. That's where we will spend our time. So we're going to look at three reminders this morning in verses 1 through 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we will be better prepared for the unpredictable nature of life and the terminal nature of our lives in death. So beginning in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, Solomon will say death is certain. In other words, death is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're wise or foolish. It doesn't matter if you're strong or weak. Death is the universal obliterator. And there's not a lot that you can do to keep death from calling your name. The only ultimate solution is if Jesus Christ returns in our lifetime. So Solomon begins in verse 1 with these words, for, or better yet, indeed, I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. You might want to underline or highlight in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Talk about depressing. That's discouraging. And yet most of us, we come to church to be encouraged. But sometimes the most encouraging thing is to be told the truth so that you might prepare for the end of your life whenever that may come. Solomon says that our lives are in the hands of God. He is sovereign over circumstances, whether they appear to be loving or hateful. Our circumstances are from God's hands. He's sovereign. He's in control no matter what our circumstances may look like to us from a limited, finite perspective. This has hit a lot of us as recent as yesterday. An 18-year-old went into a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, and he gunned down 13 individuals. Three were injured, 10 passed from this life. My guess is 
that there was at least one believer in those 13. Maybe there were a few or several people who were followers of Jesus Christ. I guarantee you they didn't go into that supermarket expecting to die or to be injured. One of the men that I was really inspired by was a retired police officer who was willing to lay down his life in order to try to protect some of the people in the supermarket. He's now being called a hero because, like Jesus has said, greater love has no man than this when he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. See, the truth is, whether from a human perspective you're good or bad, whether you're obedient or disobedient, whether you're wise or foolish, circumstances can overtake you, but they're all a part of God's sovereign hand. Now, look how Solomon continues this argument in verses 2 and 3. He's actually going to ratchet things up. These verses are going to tell us why Solomon is not invited to death cafes. I mean, Solomon is a wet blanket. Just when you think, okay, this is bad, he says, well, I can one-up what I just said. Verses 2 and 3, it, death, is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Now listen to this. Afterwards, they go to the dead. I mean, if we were to summarize this, even using Solomon's language, under the sun, and you're done. In other words, your life under the S-U-N, not above the sun, dealing with Christ, the S-O-N, but your life in this world, it's here one moment, it's gone the next, under the sun, and you're done. Now, what's so cruel about these verses is morality doesn't determine mortality. In other words, Obeying God's law doesn't allow you to evade Adam's curse. That's what's so painful because we're looking at these two verses and we're thinking, well, what if I obey God? What if I do everything right? What if I seek Him? What if I read His Word? What if I pray? What if I share my faith? What if I'm a churchwoman or a churchman? What if I serve the community? I mean, if I do the right thing, I'm going to be fine, right? Solomon would say, wrong. Maybe, maybe not. It's paralyzing. And yet he tells us the truth. He tells us what Scripture teaches, that it is appointed unto man to die and then the judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. He tells us the truth because if this life is a shadow, if it's grass, if it's fleeting, we better think through what awaits after the grave. That's what Solomon is trying to argue. 
In verse 3, there's something really interesting because Solomon calls death evil. He, he actually uses the word evil twice in this one verse. And we're thinking, well, wait a second. I mean, is death really evil? I love the fact that so many children have been worshiping with us on Sunday mornings. And I'm wondering, kids, have you seen The Lion King? Raise your hand if you're a child, a teen, or an adult, and you've seen The Lion King, an oldie but goodie. Okay, quite a few of you. So you understand the terminology, the circle of life. What we often do at memorial services and when we're interacting with a loved one who's grieving the loss of someone in their lives, we'll say, death, death isn't that bad. Death is something that's common to man. It's something that's just a part of this life. Don't let it get you down. Scripture would say that's the most pathetic, pitiful response imaginable. Death is evil. The reason that there is death is because Adam sinned and we have joined in with him and we have continued to sin to our heart's content. So like Adam, we ourselves are cursed. God intended for us to live on an Eden-like earth where we would rule and reign with Him and we would experience perfection and that there would be no sin. What we have today was not God's intent. Now, God in His sovereignty has created and prepared a perfect plan to glorify Him and to make much of Jesus Christ by having Jesus become a man and ultimately die on the cross and rise from the dead so that the power of sin might be broken once and for all. But that's not what's optimum. What's optimum is that we would go back to harmony and perfect fellowship with God, which one day we will if we've placed our faith in Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you that death is a good thing. Now, admittedly, there is one benefit to death. And that is, if we die, we get to see Jesus that much sooner. And so that sounds good to me. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can agree with that. But death in and of itself is not a good thing. Solomon's going to expound on this concept in verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, Solomon says, For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, this verse states what I have believed for many, many years, that dogs are better than cats, <laughs> and that dogs are even better than big cats. I mean, let, let's be honest here. Some of us love our dogs so much, we love them more than our spouse and our children. I mean, we celebrate anything and everything that they do. I mean, we will say to our dog, Come here, come here. And if that dog comes, we're like, oh, good boy, good boy. Here's a treat. Oh, you, you are amazing. I mean, we let our dogs lay on our couch. Some of them get into our beds. I mean, we, we can't get enough of our dogs. But the problem is, it's that that allows us not to understand verse 4. Because in the ancient Near East, dogs were scoundrels. They were scavengers. They were unclean. They were the equivalent to 
rats or vultures. No one wanted dogs around. Now, lions, they were stately, they were majestic, they were powerful, the king of the jungle. I mean, even in Scripture, we've got the Lion of Judah, Jesus is the Lion of God. I mean, who wouldn't be excited about a lion? But a dog? In the ancient Near East? Not on your life. So Solomon is actually countercultural because what he says is, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And doesn't that make sense? He's saying that to be alive actually has some perks, as miserable as this life can be. So the question is, what are the benefits? Verses 5 and 6 tell us, For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Now, remember what we've talked about in the past. Solomon does have faith in God. He does understand that there's an afterlife. He may not understand all the details that you and I might understand with New Testament revelation, but don't think that Solomon is just a mere cynic and skeptic. He's a man of faith. But what he's saying for the sake of our understanding is, under the sun, when a person dies, he or she has no memory, no ability to change any circumstances. He's just thinking about the grave. He's thinking about death in the ultimate sense. He's not trying to develop an afterlife perspective. And this should make sense, because if you're a pre-Christian this morning and you're sensing that God-shaped void in your life, and you're asking the question, could there be more than just this life? Solomon would say, do something today to take a step toward finding answers to some of life's questions. We've said in Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of questions we can't answer, but we can move forward one step and begin to seek out answers to life's questions. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, the fact that we have breath right now ought to remind us we need to think about what our eternity will be like. How have our lives here on earth mattered for eternity? What can we do to begin to treasure up for ourselves treasure in heaven? Not for our sake, but to lay our crowns and our treasure at Jesus' feet, not just once, but continually in the eternal state. That our lives here on earth would have made a difference for all of eternity. Solomon knows that once you pass, there's not an opportunity to make course corrections. And that is his argument. So we've said that death is certain. But now we're going to see that life is uncertain. Life is unpredictable. We can't guarantee what the future holds, even in our lives as believers. So we're going to move from verse 6 all the way down to verses 11 and 12. 
Solomon is going to say, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. So Solomon says, are you strong? Are you fast? Are you intelligent? I mean, what's, what's your strength? What's your skill? Don't count on that always changing your circumstances. There's no guarantee. Now, you may say, well, Keith, nine out of ten times, the strong win. The wise accomplish their goals. The fast are more efficient than the competition. That may be true. But one out of ten times, that may not ring true. And you may find yourself in the 10 percentile. Solomon is just trying to humble us to dust. But in verse 11, there's a confusing statement, and that is, for time and chance overtake them all. What some will say is, well, see, the sovereign God that you've been talking about, Keith, He's not so sovereign after all, because chance can actually overtake us. Fate can overtake us, and that has nothing to do with God. I will rarely say that there is an English version that translates something in a way that's not necessarily helpful. But I'm in agreement with a number of scholars who simply say chance is not the best rendering. The actual phrase is time and happenings happen to all. This is not chance like our English concept where, you know, you win the lottery, you're quote lucky, chance has been good to you. No, this is just determining the fact that the various circumstances of our lives, they're guided by a sovereign God and everything needs to go through His hand. It may appear to be chance to some, but these are happenings that happen from the hand of God. So please understand that this does not in any way diminish God's sovereignty. Verse 12 says, moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Do you see that? We're like fish. We're like birds. We're caught in a net. We're ensnared. The point Solomon is making is, Life is unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know when it's going to happen to us. So that means we open up our hands to God's sovereign hand and we say, come what may. Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, in my spouse's life, in my children's lives, in my grandchildren's lives, in my friendships, even here at the church I worship, God, you are sovereign and you are free. You don't need input from me. And you don't owe me anything. It's open hands to the hand of God. Solomon is reminding us of what we know to be true. Life is uncertain. It's unpredictable. But what is predictable, what is certain is death. And so the unpredictable nature of life and the guarantee of death 
it ought to change how we live. And that's what Solomon is driving toward. He's now going to be entering into the center of the chiasm, and he's going to remind us, enjoy your life. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. Because if life is uncertain, but death is quite certain, this side of heaven, under the sun, enjoy. Enjoy your life. Now, verses 7 through 10 are the sixth section that deals with you and I enjoying life. Now, again, you may be saying, well, Keith, why does Solomon need to say it so many times? I have an idea. It's because we're more spiritual than God. We actually think that the good gifts He gives, the pure pleasures in this life, they're not meant to be enjoyed. So while God wants to give us these gifts, we instead want to be pious, a bit gloomy, and we don't want to enjoy life too much because there's something within us us that says, that's just not spiritual. I've just got to suffer, and I've got to be unhappy. I mean, isn't that what God expects? Some of you are nodding your heads. You shouldn't be. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He wants us to enjoy Him, and He wants us to enjoy His gifts. Solomon does something in this section that he doesn't do anywhere else in Ecclesiastes. He gives the longest instruction of the entire book, and on top of that, he gives five imperatives or commands. So there's five action steps that he gives for us to be able to cope with life's uncertainty and with life's terminal nature. So let's see the first in verses 7 and 8. Solomon says, go. So he says by way of command, go. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense, I need to do this today. I need to do it right now. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Solomon says, God has given you food as a gift. I mean, isn't that true? Vegetables, I got to get those out of the way. Fruits, grains, meat. He's given us all kinds of good gifts. He says, enjoy it. Don't be gluttonous, but enjoy His good gifts. How many times did Jesus share meals with unbelievers and believers in His earthly ministry? What does Jesus talk about during His earthly ministry? That there will be a time where He will break bread with us and enjoy wine with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's right, you'll drink wine in the eternal state, and so will I. God intends for you and I to have fellowship and friendship around food. Not that it becomes an idol, but that it's more than just fuel to get us through life. It's a good gift. What's your favorite food? Enjoy it. But Solomon also says, what do you like to drink? In the ancient Near East, they drank wine. You may not like wine. You may have been impacted by the abuse of alcohol in your family. You don't have to drink alcohol, but you can drink alcohol in moderation. Solomon is saying, what's your favorite drink? Is it tea? Is it coffee? 
Is it Gatorade? You choose your favorite drink. For some of you, you like diet colas. Whatever works for you, enjoy it. In moderation, yes. But make the most of it. Because this life is unhappy. This life is frustrating. And God says, I'm giving you these good gifts, so eat up and drink up. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 7. This is so powerful. He says, for God has already approved your works. What are the works that he has approved? Receiving his good gifts. That's what we don't get. I'm a father. I hope to be a grandfather one day. I love to give my children good gifts. Some of you have the gift of giving. You want to give people gifts. It's your love language. Why would you and I think that we are more generous and gracious than God? I mean, we learn generosity and goodness from God. So if God has taught us how to give good gifts, doesn't He want to give good gifts to us and doesn't He want us to receive them? When we don't receive His good gifts, we're actually offensive to Him. He's approved our enjoyment of the gifts. Let's enjoy them. Solomon is not done. In verse 8, we have a relatively odd verse for us in terms of our culture, but it makes sense. Solomon says, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your beard or your head in this case. Solomon makes it clear that a part of parties, feasts, and festivals is the wearing of white and the blessing of oil. So in the ancient Near East, when there was mourning, when there was grief, they would wear black. But when there was partying, they would wear white. Now, white was also the color of choice because in the ancient Near East, it was hot and humid. And so white was your form of air conditioning. Where we live on the east side, <laughs> it's always gloomy. It's always overcast and rainy. So we don't necessarily need to wear white to show celebration. We can wear power colors. We can wear any type of color that we enjoy. But the point is, dress up and enjoy the good gift that God has given you. Clothing. Or how about this, even oil? Why did they put oil on their head or their beards or their bodies in the ancient Near East? Because the weather would crack their skin. They would apply oil on their face, on their head, on their bodies, and it was a means of joy in Scripture. For us, it's cologne and perfume. For those that have great beards, it's beard oil. You can enjoy perfume, cologne, beard oil. Just don't put so much on that you burn down your house. Moderation in all things, right? Solomon is saying we need to be festive. We need to enjoy ourselves. We need to party. Now, if I were to boil down verses 7 through 10, I would put it like this. Have a blast while you last. We're going to die. It could be today. So while we have breath, let's enjoy ourselves. 
let's be joyous, let's be festive, let's make the most of the good gifts God has given us. Verse 9 is another great example. Solomon is going to urge us to enjoy our relationships. He says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Do you notice Solomon's language? He uses that word havel that we've talked about, fleeting, futile, vapor, mist. And he's saying, in light of the fact that this life is passing and it's frustrating, love the wife that God has given you. And this is being spoken by a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, <laughs> girlfriends. <laughs> you know what he's saying? He's saying, as I've begun to come to the end of my journey, one partner, one heart, that's what my life needs to be about, and that's what I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to enjoy my wife, perhaps that wife that he wrote about in the Song of Songs that he wrote. See, the truth is, many of us, we don't enjoy our spouse. And those of us who do, we say, well, I may enjoy my spouse, but I'm too busy to really enjoy my spouse. In other words, I don't have time to listen. I don't have time to nurture. I don't have time to encourage. I don't have time to be affectionate and to really understand my spouse. If that's the case, you're too busy. Because if you're married, the most important relationship and the most important ministry in your life is your spouse, your wife or your husband. Now, because in the ancient Near East, nearly everyone got married, we need to be able to also apply this to the 21st century on the east side of Seattle, where there are more single people than married people. Those of us who are married are in the minority. So what Solomon is saying is, who are the people who you are in relationship with? Is it a classmate? Is it a roommate? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it someone here at CBC? Who has the Lord said, this is a relationship you need to invest in? Enjoy it. Enjoy it guilt-free. Make the most of time with people because people are eternal. Work can wait. Certain leisure activities, they can wait. People are meant to be invested in. Relationships are a lot like flowers. If you don't appreciate them, if you don't nurture them, they will wither and die. And I think we've seen some of that as a result of COVID. And some of us have not invested in human relationships like we need to. And we need to come together in caring community and say, I need to connect with you. You need to connect with me. Let's make up for last time. For tomorrow we may die. Have a blast while you last. Solomon concludes in a way that you would not expect. In verse 10, he speaks of work. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Now you may say, Keith, this is so morbid. This is even worse than some of the things you said previously. 
Sheol is the grave. And there are many nuances to Sheol in the Old Testament. But Solomon is simply taking the base definition, the grave. He's saying when we die, there's no opportunity for us to work and to really enjoy our lives. So he says, whatever you do vocationally, make sure that you do it with all your might. Whether you're going to go into the office tomorrow morning or you're going to walk downstairs into your home office, give God thanks for your job. If you're going to be at home investing in your children or perhaps even your grandchildren, do it with all your might. Say, Lord, thank you for my good gift. If you're retired, you need to be refired. And you need to be saying, what can I do for the community? How can I serve Crossroads in the best years of my life? And then give God praise. Give Him glory for what He's done in giving you the opportunity to serve Him through work. I want you to really slowly and carefully look out of the corner of your left eye at the person next to you. And then look out of the corner of your right eye at the person next to you. Don't do anything abrupt. Just carefully look. Those people are terminal. <laughs> I'm glad you're at least laughing now, right? The D word is not so devastating after all, at least not at this moment. We're all going to die. We know that. So here's what we need to do. When we stand before the mirror, when we're putting on our perfume, our cologne, our oils, our white clothing or our other flamboyant clothing, we look into that mirror and we say, self, I'm going to die. And it may be today. Can you imagine if we said that to ourselves every day? That if we understood we truly have a death sentence and we're not guaranteed tomorrow, how would that change our today? We'd have a blast while we last. We'd say, let's make the most of this life. Let's invest in relationships. Let's enjoy a good meal. Let's party where we can. Because life is hard and then you die. Have a blast while you last. Every year I teach a class at Ecola Bible College called Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things or the end times. And I've done this for about 20 years. And I always give a homework assignment, and there's a number of questions in the homework assignment. But the one that's most memorable is this. If today were your last day on earth, what would you do? And I always have students who would say, I would read my Bible. I'll pray. And I'll share my faith with unbelievers. As I've interacted with those students, they've told me, Keith, I haven't been doing those things during my life. So on my last day on planet Earth, that's what I want to do. I can appreciate that. But our lives should consist of being in the Word, praying, and sharing our faith. 
It shouldn't wait until the last day. There are other students who are not as spiritual who will say, I'd like to watch a movie with friends. I'd like to go rock climbing. I'd like to go skydiving. I'd like to see my family one more time and tell them I love them. So you can have it both ways. You can live a life where you're walking worthy of the gospel, but you can also enjoy yourself along the way. We should be the happiest people on planet earth. The Hebrew people who Solomon wrote this book to, they had ten words for joy. Ten words in the Old Testament for joy. They were the most joyous, happy, exuberant people. They understood that God created the first man and the first woman in a place called Eden, which, by the way, means delight. God always intended our delight. And He's going to take us to a new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will delight ourselves in Him and one another. In the meantime, He says, have a blast while you last. Let's pray together. Father, help us to enjoy this life because of what you've done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are our joy. You are the reason we don't have to deal with the consequences of the curse of sin. You have allowed us to live a life not under the sun, but above the sun, in the sun. Help us to recognize our need of you today. Today, if you are watching online or if you're here in person wrestling with the fact that you know in your heart of hearts you don't have a relationship with God and you know you could die, perhaps you've even been told that you have a limited time left on planet earth, would you not leave today without trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior? There is no more important decision in this life. And if today you would say, you know what, I appreciate that, Keith. I'm not ready to trust in Jesus. Would you take one step, a next step, to find out more about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Jesus is the most important person in human history. He is the Savior of the world. Do not postpone a relationship with Him. Trust in Him today. Acknowledge your sin and the Savior will save you by His grace. Father, would You help us to recognize our uncertain circumstances? Would You help us to recognize that death is inevitable? And would You give us the ability to enjoy our lives, but to also make our lives count for You? To sense the urgency, to sense the longing to be able to make a difference and express our gratitude to Jesus for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given us eternal life, but you've also given us the abundant life. Help us to live out both in our experience today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.